0: So, to give you a bit of a context, where where are we at? We're, We're studying a safer called the Tanya. And the Tanya presents an internal perspective of what does it look like when you go inside your spiritual self. And the reason why we got here was because we came to this realization that until we experience spirituality from within, it's going to be very difficult to experience spirituality from without. To illustrate... The reason why we have a capacity to identify with people emotionally is because we have our own emotional range. We have our own internal world of emotions. If our internal world of emotions is not developed and not refined and not deepened, our capacity to see emotions in others will be limited in, in, kind of in the same measure that our internal emotional world is because the the vehicle or the apparatus we need for registering in the other is the same depth and capacity we have inside of ourselves. So ironically, if I would like to feel someone else's emotions and be able to experience the pain or the joy of another, I have to be conscious of my own pain and joy. And when my emotional internal awareness is shut down, for example, in extreme cases, let's say of a person who suffers from um, some kind of autistic condition where their access to social cues is limited, just like they can't experience um, the emotions inside of self, they can't can't identify with them outside of themselves. So the pathway towards spiritual uh, realization comes through our own eternal awareness of what we'd call our soul, and because we're in a Jewish spiritual system, the soul is very well articulated in the different works of the great teachers. And the power of articulation, the power of, oh my gosh, get in here. The power of articulation, is that, is that okay? Thank you for making such a noticeable. <laughs> the, 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 very often the way we access things is, is actually by using words. And even in the world of emotion, until, until I can use words to describe my emotional movements, it's very difficult for me to actually grasp them. And in fact, a lot of the power of most therapies is simply giving the person the opportunity to talk about their experiences. And after a has spoken about the experiences, what happens is I will say, oh my gosh, now it all makes sense. But they didn't produce any new information. They just translated The experiences from being an amorphous series of pulls and pushes to a well-articulated and structured system. Okay, so that's that's why if we can somehow find words to describe our internal spiritual structure. Oh, here we go. Hi boys. No, no, no. Please come inside. As you know. We embrace embrace people coming in at any time of day or night. We feel it's important that flexibility is granted in order to create diversity and distraction for those who are just about to lose their concentration because they're focused on the content. So, (laughs) here we go. Um, That is actually very, very true. So, I want to know what my soul, if I would speak about my soul, what would it... What would I say about it? And this is kind of a strange question to ask people because I don't know, like, do I have a soul? Where do I feel it? Where does it come in? So if I said to you, well, where does your anger come in? Anger is a very easy emotion to, to spot. And I can say, well, how does it feel when you're angry? Um, how long does it take to, to to go away? And you may say, well, it depends on... I can't inside. Thank you for showing us. <laughs> oh, really? Please, no. It's okay, it's okay. No, it's Okay we're just we're just chatting about how how much I enjoy I enjoy punctuality. hey punctuality. yeah no no I much enjoy the flexibility of the the kind of the, the shift system that's going on I love it things think important we wouldn't want everyone to come at the same time because that would you know <laughs> there 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 is there is there is there's a chair there. you don't have to penalize yourself and feel terrible for the rest of the chair <laughs> okay um so, so where do I see my soul? Where do I feel my soul? How does it feel like when I've got a really strong, does it have an anatomy? Emotions have a certain anatomy. There's, you know, there's, there maybe there's anger and there's calm and there's arrogance and there's humility and there's there's joy and there's sadness. So I have words that can describe the different movements of my emotional body. What are the different movements of my spiritual body? And one of the, one of the thrusts of um, our own spiritual work is definitely to, to explore that. And that's why this, the book that we're studying, which is a Tanya, already in the first chapter, he launches into this description of what it looks like when we dig deep inside and we examine our spiritual anatomy. And he presents us with quite a revolutionary understanding because he articulates our inner conflict in a novel way. By describing two personality sets that simultaneously coexist within and yet have completely opposite perspectives on how life should be lived. And we've explored the first one which is actually the contrast to spirituality which if you think about it sometimes it's easier to see things by negation. Sometimes contrast is the greatest clarifier of an experience. For example, I've just moved neighborhoods less than a year ago, almost a year ago. For 30 years, I lived in one neighborhood and I've been living in another neighborhood for one year. My experience of transformation has been profound because for 30 years, it was a neighborhood where I was never really part of it. I had no idea how impactful the fact that I didn't have a simple rapport with the people around me was on my internal emotional life. And I'm not blaming anyone else. It's my own issue. But because of that, I would feel constantly disengaged and alienated on a daily basis, which meant every single time I went to show, I went to show, and it was another day when no one said hello to me. It was another day when there was no meeting in the eyes of someone and smiling and chuckling about some kind of implicit joke. It was another day of feeling, what am I doing here? None of that was conscious. So if you asked me, well, you know, is this, is this how's it going? I said, great. Um, what about your neighbor? Yeah, it's got, you know, it's got good parts and bad parts. Then I moved, and in hindsight, not in hindsight, the contrast allowed me to appreciate community allowed me to appreciate what it meant to walk into the shul, and there were five people that I knew, and I could just go like that to them. It allowed me the ability to feel that I can contribute and to be seen and acknowledged, and it was transformational. But the power of the perception ironically came from the negative, because I was so aware of what it felt like not to have all those things, I became So potently aware of what it felt like when I did have those things. So the power of negation can be a very clarifying force in our life. So ironically, when the Tanya starts the journey of spiritual exploration, he starts it in the animal self, which will provide us a contrast to see where the soul exists, because it's not there, the higher godly soul. Isn't that brilliant? brilliant. And he starts like this. He says, well, there are these two, two personalities, two selves inside of us. We have an animal self and we have a godly self. We haven't got on to the godly self. That begins in chapter 2. Chapter 1, he goes into depth. What is this animal self? How does he work? First of all, his description of the conflict of the internal soul of a Jew is not articulated by a struggle between good and evil, but rather by a struggle between mundane and transcendent. Our struggle is not between toivarai in Hebrew, but between chol and kodesh. What is my life going to look like? Is my life going to be orientated for material benefit in a totally legitimate way? Because the soul is not an evil, dark, sinister, goblin! The soul is just gishmaka behemah. An animal. What does an animal want? The animal wants to eat, to drink, to procreate, to have shelter. Those are normal, legitimate animal needs. What does my animal soul want? He wants to eat, to drink, to procreate, and to have shelter. And therefore, what will the animal self drive me towards? Sustainable income, shelter, finding a mate, having a couple of kids. And getting on with it. What doesn't the animal cell address? Meaning transcendence. Reaching out beyond the narrow confines of myself through love and care for community. Nothing that's um, transcendent. That goes beyond breaking down the limited parameters of the self. Does the animal soul find interest in? He's all about self-preservation. But not malicious, not not hell bent on destruction, simply mundane. Like a good lion, tiger, elephant, armadilla porcupine. <laughs> How do porcupines keep warm in the cold? They snuggle. Well they could snuggle, but the problem is they've got these these um needles. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I never thought about that. But then they kind of lean on their backs and they get pierced. There's a great, uh, a great analogy to human beings through porcupines, because porcupines have got these, like, these, these quills, these um, strong needles. If they get too close, they'll prick each other. So how do porcupines survive in the snow? They huddle together at exactly the right distance that their that they're, that their needles don't pierce. It's like human beings. <laughs> Too close, it gets really sore <laughs> Too far, it gets really cold You have to have that ideal distance <clears throat> Interesting So, an animal just wants to Get on with living in this world He sees no transcendence He sees no meaning He sees no higher goal It's all about the here and now And that's where it stops That's the one personality we have The other person we have, personality we have is almost the exact opposite, and we're about to explore it. Before we explore the second personality, we're going to fine-tune the nature of that animal soul by introducing this idea that by borrowing on our experience of life through the power of metaphor, we gain access to handling deep ideas. And this is where what we call the four elements come in. There are four basic elements. The albiosodos which are earth, water, wind, and fire. Because we speak in the language of metaphor, those elements become representational and not literal. So when I say a person is earthy, I don't mean that his body is made up of clogs of sand. I mean the properties of earth he presents. Even more than that, we have many times discussed that the material world is only ever manifesting a higher conceptual reality. Not so much. We've done this many times before, toast. But I'll bring you back into it. Uh, Ariel, what's more real, the watch or the design of the watch in the head of the watch designer? What's more real? Uh, the watch, because you can see it. Right, the so watch it. Smash, smash my watch to get watch is gone. The designer design has a design in his head. He has the materials that he he's access. He'll reproduce the same watch. It'll come back. So, this is just a manifestation of an idea. Without the idea, this could never come into being. The reality in its most uncompromising and unchanging state is the world of concept and ideas and not the world of material. Every material thing has an expiry date, it will disappear. It's not an unchanging reality. Ideas which are true will stay forever. So when we speak about things in terms of the elemental state, we're just referring to manifestations in physical forms of high ideas. When we speak about earth, we speak about a sense of groundedness, stability, but also immobility and lowliness. So, if I would associate an emotion with earth, what kind of emotion would be an earthy emotion, depression, and lethargy? Because when I'm depressed and lethargic, I'm stuck to my bed like a clod of sand. And therefore, the Nefesh Bahamis has these four elements in their really rough state expressed through his life. He has a propensity towards seeking rest for rest's sake. He wants to rest because his body wants to rest. He doesn't want to rest to necessarily recharge. He wants to rest because rest is a thing he likes to do. Water is an interesting element. Water corresponds to, in the negative sense, desire and lust. Why is water related to lust and desire? One of the reasons is that when a person is driven by his lust and desire, he cannot have a um, solidified form to his life. For example, if I'm governed by lust, even, they say, the desire for food, I can't really walk past my fridge to get to the tap without stopping by opening and pulling something out of it, which is just an illustration of just like there is form and matter in everything, there is clay and the potter, and what the potter does is he molds the clay. The clay is the material, and the potter gives the material form. The nature of water is it has no form. It can never be molded. Whatever vessel you put it into, it will assume the form that the vessel has. It has no form in itself. It's totally malleable. In my life, if I'm driven by desire, there can be no form. I cannot have ambitions because I'm about to train for my running, but then I overate, so I don't have the energy to do so. I'm about to excel in my business, but then I need to take a break and have a beer. And so when <coughs> desires are driving my car, I'm all over the show. I get pulled and pushed because I don't, this is actually one of the most fascinating um, pieces of spiritual apparatus we we possess is the, did you know that there's a specific prohibition? I just kind of chanced upon this yesterday. There's a spiritual direction against in Judaism, ADHD. So you may say, wow, that's, that's unfair. <laughs> you know, how can you do that? So, of course, I don't really mean that. But there's a natural propensity that we have to be easily distracted. And the nature of ADHD is you, you, re, you react to the most prominent stimulus. So if you're in a room and you may be focusing on one thing, but all of a sudden there's a sun and there's a sight, and you, your head is turned from side to side. And one of the greatest challenges we have, ADHD or not, is focus. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a human challenge. It's so hard, because it's almost as if the world is rigged to distract us. So how do you do it? So Hashem, in His wisdom, understood this, and He said, "If I tell you in the morning, listen, buddy, don't get distracted. Probably will be forgotten because you get distracted. <laughs> so how do you create the best ADHD medication ever invented?" that wouldn't work how would you create a super intense ADHD medication that will keep you focused at all times it's better than Adderall and Advanced smoked together (laughs) you could be maybe I'm wrong there okay (laughs) (laughs) where's their medication Dabonet To the Here you go boys Here you go look at this <laughs> look at these <it>, ladies Yeah. <laughs> Here you go Hashem says listen you don't get distracted if I say to you don't get distracted that's not nearly enough of a counteract to your distractions I'm going to say it like this you've got to have it on you at all times so well, where should I put it put it over your body well, what is it it's an item of clothing Well, how's that going to work? Because I'm going to rig it so that you're going to look at this, and it's going to distract you into a positive distraction. Look how distracting cities are. The Gemara says cities used to have this blue thread in them, and what would happen when you saw the blue thread? Oh, blue thread, blue thread! Oh my gosh, see, see! Oh my gosh, see, sky, sky, sky! Hashem! Oh my gosh, what am I doing? That's called associative thinking. That's how the ADHD mind works. So how do you counteract distraction? By distraction for positive reasons. I'll distract you into focus. <laughs> how cool. And you wear this thing. And him so you're walking around and you're thinking, why are these strings hanging these strings? What are they doing here? What are these strings doing? I was once in an airport and a guy, a huge guy, like seven foot, came up to me. He's strong, big. He said to me, um... I think he's from Nigeria somewhere. He said to me, you know, you've got strings sticking out of your clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I said to him, no, no, no. These were like fringes from the Bible. He said to me, <laughs> he said to me uh, you know, it doesn't look nice. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like seven foot four and like big and threading, I said, right? I didn't really do that. But in other words, you've got strings. Is, is that quite odd? One well, point am out it's odd. You should notice that. She knows that you've got strings hanging out from your from your from your, you know? And you're wearing it. And like this is like your spiritual armor, that's like keeping you focused. So you look at these babies and you say, Woohoo! Here we go, focus, focus, focus. And then you get this focus. But the nature of life is distracting. Why is it distracting? Because we've got this water part of ourselves that's just pulled in all direction. And when when you create a form of our life, that form is can get really amorphous. And therefore we have to solidify ourselves. That's the anti-water. But water is this fluidity, that i just flow with whatever comes, easy going. So on the one hand, in the, in the, we'll explore the good parts. That can be humility. I'm just okay. And that could be that I flow from a high place to a low place. That's an amazing trait. Just like the good side of earth is groundedness and stability. I'm not easily flinched. I have a certain firmness about myself. You can't shift me. It's amazing but it's also negative. So we're going to see that both these, both all these different energies have two sides to them. And then we go on to air, wind. So wind is the power of movement. It's a power of movement. Yes. to ask for water before you yeah. um, The fact that women don't wear titties is that to suggest that they don't have this sort of distraction, or men do. I mean, do I need to tell you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think women are nearly, nearly as distracted as men when it comes to negative distractions. They have a power to perhaps, you know, obviously you can't generalize, but I think there's a much more effeminate trait, is much more lended towards multitasking, which means they can they can hold multiple things simultaneously. But I don't think women have the same negative distraction, distractions man, as men do in general. Is it showing like clinically diagnosed, like the incidence of clinically diagnosed ADHD? Is it higher in men than uh, women? I, I think it is. I think, I think little boys have way, way much higher of ADHD than their little girls. Mm-hmm. Um, but even more than that, I just think, um, I think men have a stronger propensity towards being pulled aside by desire. Um, I, I think that's... I don't, know if you, I don't know if you've experienced that through your life, but, you know, I think uh, I, I've already kind of... And good, I'm like... My my experiences are dated, so I may look to Nussbaum for, for, for an update, but back in the days, you know, as a group of guys, you know, there may be a group of people, and I'm not going to overtly associate them with, with them, but they'd stand on the street corner they are kind of watching the scenery. And the scenery used to usually be featherless bipeds, which is... Uh, Featherless biped, I think, was Archimedes' description of a human being because he says, Well, how do you describe a human being? Well, they don't have feathers, but they're bipeds, they have two legs, but birds have got two legs as well, so they're featherless bipeds. Um, Uh, generally, penguins. Oh, they got, oh, got, <laughs> got feathers. They got feathers. They oh, got feathers. They got feathers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, good, good thinking. Um, so back in the day, a group of guys used to sit around and kind of like spend their time like watching the scenery. The scenery was the progression of featherless bipeds, generally from opposite gender to themselves, um, and, they, and never there was like never comparison where a group of girls would do that. In the same way, you know, like whistling when they saw like a guy. It's like, it just, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> think, think I think things are changing. I think gender differences are definitely becoming all kind of over the show. But I do think that there are certain energies that people create and within the Jewish perspective of male and female, which is very different from the Western perspective. Because the Jewish perspective of male and female definitely has a strong notion of. Um, Delineated boundaries, not that, not really about men and women, because in Torah, the notions of male and female are energies which um, which are universal. So, for example, the rain is male, the earth is female, the sun is male, the moon is female, the power of Chokhmah um, is male, the power of Binah is female. So it's, it's not about, it's more yin, yin-yang-ish than it is male-female, but the, the male energy has this component and the female energy has that component. And obviously what you're always trying to do is create the perfect balance between those energies. Um, so men, the, the male energy is, is, is a much more conquering energy than the female energy. Um, traditionally, throughout the ages, uh, it, it, war, it was always the men who were the conquerors. And it's not only because of, let's say, um, a stronger physical body, but it may be influential, but it just means that there was the, that is the male energy. And the female energy is, is a much more um, accepting and um, submissive energy. There's actually interesting like, things where, where these quirky little, you know, anyway, it's too complicated to discuss because today's gender world is, is way, way too confusing. But let's go back to the Tanya and uh, back to water. And then back to air and wind. So wind is the power of movement. So wind is what moves me. Um, just like very much, if you, if, you, if you just look outside, and if you notice, um, oh, it would have to be, wouldn't it? Uh, all of a sudden, there's no wind. Right. <laughs> like there's been a gale blowing for the last, like, five days. Turn around, it's all gone. <laughs> if it would be windy, well, you'd see the trees would all be swaying. And in fact, the word for ruach, um, the word for wind, which is ruach, describes emotional movement as well. Because we use those two things um, synonymously, Synonymously, that when a person is emotionally affected, you say, oh, I was so moved by that. I was moved by that. So you can move a person through his emotions. So the, the movement, the movement which is wind, Gives a person um, mobility, movement, push. It's also air. So it's a movement which has no substance to it. So in the negative side, one of the things which would be moving would be meaningless words. Words which have nothing, they just hot air, they just wind. They just in the negative side. In the positive side, it would be um, the power of, of forward projection that you can actually get somewhere. Like, you know, the sail in your winds. Or the winds in your sail, sorry. Um, so there's wind, and then you've got fire. Fire is interesting because it produces light and heat. It's a very powerful element. And the way it does it is by consuming fuel. So in the world of emotions... Fire is anger and arrogance. What does that fire eat? It eats the other. <laughs> Meaning when I'm angry, I get my anger it's stimulated by my pushing down someone else. And there, me looking at them and my fury at them fuels my anger. How dare they say that to me? Vroom, vroom. That's a firewood I'm feeding this, this, this inferno. Or the other way that fire is fed is by arrogance. Oh, yes. Putting you down so I can push myself up. Good. Let's read it in the words of the Balatanya. The Balatanya says, kula So the negative traits come out from this animal self, which are the Me'arab-i-soy, rhyme from the four negative parts of the four elements the negative parts of the four elements she, Sheba which are in this animal being Tehainu Kas V'gai anger and arrogance from fire She'Nigba Lamalo that a person propels himself upwards at the desires of the flesh from water he says a different reason he says that water Gives the lushness to any environment It's a sweetness in the fruits Daniel Nussbaum um, Do you want to explain the positive of the fire? The positive of the fire is self-growth And I use my own failings to project myself forward right. right And then phew, propelled And like my regret of I can't believe I did that I'm never going to do that again Foom! Okay Um and foolishness and mockery, and self-glorification, drawing uh, and meaningless words. That's that's the negative side of wind. And the lethargy and sadness. Offer coming from 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 dust, from earth. Now at the end of this chapter, which is which becomes really quite jarring, the Balatanya adds on something very, very unique about the Jewish animal soul. And he says that the, the, the Jewish animal soul has something else. Um, throughout the generations, there's been something quite specific about the roles that Jew plays, Jews play in, in, in society. And very often they take on the role of the philanthropist and the humanitarian. That was definitely true in the American Civil Rights Movement, even more true in the South African fight against apartheid. Nelson Mandela was extremely well um, informed, thought that there were millions of Jews in South Africa when there were only at the highest point, 120,000. And he wasn't wrong in thinking that, because the majority of people he came into contact with, We're Jewish. He's just mixing in the right circles. It's because the people that gave him his first job, that advocated for him, that spearheaded the anti-apartheid movement, which was such a destructive force in terms of discrimination and persecution, were Jewish. In fact, the head of the South African Communist Movement, which is a major um, catalyst in in anti-apartheid movements... His name was Joe Slovo Who comes from a rich Rich, rich tradition of rabbis Because Joe Slovo, he was a shortened form of Yosef Soloveitchik Which is, happens to be the name of One of the greatest um, sages In modern times, the Bezalevi I think he was a direct descendant So there you go So so Nelson Mandela thought there were millions of Jews And he was right, because Jews tend to have A heightened sense of compassion And awareness of community around them And therefore there's something about The default setting Of a Jew Even in the world of his animalistic existence That he sees through His own opaque self To those of others Says the Balatanya Even the good traits That are part of the natural Default of the Jewish people but told awesome, as, a, as a genetic result of their spiritual gene mercy and kindness he leaves out one which is which means the capacity to feel embarrassment which means a sense of um, um, sensitivity also come from this animal soul. Because even though this is coming from a part of the spiritual universe, which is a shell, it's an opaque, it's not the essence, this shell that the Jewish soul comes from is called the shell of light. And it means it's not totally opaque. It has a certain level of transparency so that the inner Nishama can peek through it. And then he says a secret. And now we're going to be late for Minxler. So we'll stop right there. Thank you for your rapt attention.